Let me remind you today that wherever you are, uh, whatever your situation is, God is with you. Uh, He knows you. He knows what you're going through, and He is with you. And I wanted to assure you of that uh, today. And then the message is going to work through 1 Kings chapter 18. Well, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And last week, if you heard the message, we discovered that there are many things, there are many idols, many false gods that are trying to capture our heart. We asked ourselves some difficult questions to try to identify some of the gods that are at war within us. And I hope that you found that if you struggle with jealousy, it's not just that you're a jealous person, it's that perhaps you've made other things a god in your life. Or if you're anxious and you worry a lot, it's not just that you're an anxious person, but perhaps you've made comfort and security a god in your life. If you keep losing the war to lust, maybe you've made sex a god in your life. If you struggle with gossip, uh, maybe you've made what other people think of you a god in your life. If you're a little bit legalistic or self-righteous, maybe that's because you've made religious rules into a god of your life. Uh, If you're discontent, maybe it's because you've made money a god in your life. If you're proud, maybe it's because you've made your image a god. And if you lack self-control, maybe it's because you've turned pleasure into a God. My whole point with all of that is that behind every sin that we struggle with, there's often a false God that is trying to win the war for our heart. And so our goal is to identify the gods that are at war within us so that we can battle them in order to worship the true God, the one true God, instead. We believe here at Living Life Reformed Church that true, lasting life, the life that you and I are created for, only comes from God and by putting Him on the throne of our hearts. And so that's what we're trying to do in this series. So what are the gods that threaten to steal our hearts and our excitement for God? Well, I think some of the hardest gods to defeat are the gods of pleasure. We continually find ourselves bowing down to what feels good. And we don't want to feel bad, so we're in this constant pursuit of trying to feel good. And so these gods of pleasure are everywhere for us, and they're some of the most difficult ones to defeat. And in part, this is because many of these gods are not evil or wrong in themselves. Instead, they were gifts that were given to us by God himself, And we turn them into gods. We took good gifts, we turned them into gods, we took a gift that God gave us, and then we turned it into his primary competition. I want you to imagine that you're a parent uh, and you buy an iPhone for your child. Uh, You take it home and your child is ecstatic about getting it. And so they give you a big thank you, lots of hugs. Uh, It's a great scene. And your child sets up the iPhone and begins to use it, and you find great joy in seeing the pleasure that they uh, get from this gift that you've given them. But then after a few weeks, it seems like all that they ever really want to do is to be on their phone. And then they start complaining about the accessories that they don't have that come with the phone, or the next version that they don't have. And, And finally, you come home one day from work, And you want to spend time with your child, 
But your child doesn't want to spend time with you because they would rather be on their iPhone. What happened? Well, the gift replaced the giver. At least practically speaking, the gift means more to the person than the one who gave it. And this is what we've done with many of the gifts of pleasure that God has given us to enjoy. We've turned them into gods. We've made them his competition. And so these could be the gods that are hardest to identify and to destroy. But let's look at 1 Kings 18. And before we hear that story, let me give you some context for it. Uh, Last week we read about Joshua challenging the people to serve the Lord God alone, to destroy the gods of Egypt and other gods. But the people do not destroy the other gods. They just put them into storage for a while. And hundreds of years later, the false gods of Egypt come back with a vengeance. Israel split into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and the evil king Ahab rules in Israel, the northern kingdom. And Ahab has married a foreign woman, if you know the story. Her name is Jezebel, and she is more evil than he is, which is saying a lot. Jezebel kills all the prophets of the Lord God that can be found, and she sets up an altar and a temple for the God of her land named Baal. Well, God, we saw last week, is a jealous God, and eventually he's had enough of this, and he's going to put a stop to it. So he calls his prophet Elijah and he says to Elijah, I want you to go to Ahab and deliver a message to him. And so this is what you would read about in chapter 17. In verse 1 of chapter 17, Elijah says to the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So Elijah the prophet goes to the king and he says, A drought is coming. And so that's where we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 18. The people are in this third year of drought as we move into that. During the time and life of the prophet Elijah, drought filled the land. There had not been any rain for years. The Israelites' crops died, their animals died, and they became hopeless. This drought was sent from God because of their disobedience and that of their evil king Ahab. King Ahab hated God. He also hated Elijah, who was a prophet and messenger of God. One day, Elijah came before King Ahab to tell the king what God was going to do. When the king saw Elijah, he became very angry and said, What do you want? You are just a troublemaker. Elijah looked at the king with stern disappointment and said, No, King Ahab, you've rejected God and followed idols. God is going to show you that he alone is God. Bring all your false and wicked prophets with you and meet me on top of Mount Carmel. On Mount Carmel, Elijah built an altar to the one true God, Yahweh. He told Ahab's wicked prophets to build their own altar to their false god Baal. Then Elijah said, Here are the rules. You put a bull on your altar, and I will put one on mine. Then we both pray. I will pray to the true living God, Yahweh, and you can pray to your false god Baal. If Yahweh is the real true God, he will send fire down from heaven and burn up the altar. If Baal is a real god, he will send fire from heaven and burn up your altar. 
Then the contest began. The wicked false prophets of Baal started first. They prayed, yelled, shouted, and even started hurting themselves. But nothing happened. Then they decided to shout louder, cry louder, and dance more. But still, nothing happened. Baal was not a real god, and all the people of Israel saw this. Then it was Elijah's turn. To make sure all the people saw this miracle, Elijah took twelve buckets of water and threw it on the altar. The altar was now soaking wet, making it impossible for a fire to burn on top of it. Then Elijah started to pray. Lord, show these wicked people that you are the only true living God. Suddenly, the heavens opened up and a mighty column of fire exploded from the sky onto Elijah's altar. As the fire started to burn up the entire altar, the people of Israel became silent. They knew then that Yahweh was the only true God. The people were in shock and fell down on their faces before God. They knew the truth. So they shouted, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. They knew they sinned and asked God for forgiveness. That day, Elijah and the people of Israel chased away and killed the wicked false prophets who hated God. They made sure that these wicked teachers would never again spread the false news about their false gods. Baal was just a piece of stone with no life. But God was the real one true God. And that day, everyone saw God's great power. Here's what's important to understand. Baal, the god they had been worshipping, primarily was a god of rain. He was a god of weather. And so God looks at Israel as a nation and he sees that the primary god that they're worshipping is a god of rain. And so the Lord God says, all right, then I'm going to withhold rain. And this is often what the Lord does. He sees an area that has become too important to us. In fact, it's become more important to us than him. And, and he withdraws his blessing in that area. Does this sound familiar to you? Because I think many of us have been frustrated in areas of life that mean the most to us because we've made them too important. And God in our lives has said, okay, I will remove my hand of blessing from you in that area since I am not the Lord of that area in your life. Now, this is not always the case, but often it is. So don't be surprised if you put your marriage ahead of God, if you put your work ahead of God, if you put your finances ahead of God, your business ahead of God, your sex life ahead of God, or if you put your happiness ahead of God, don't be surprised if these are the areas in which you experience the most frustration. Because God may be saying, oh, this is your bail. Okay, I won't send the rain. This is God actively opposing the other gods in our life. Now, at other times, as described in Romans chapter 1, God lets us have what we desire until we see the emptiness of pursuing these false gods. That's another approach. But in our passage today, the question is, what is the bail in your life? 
Is there an area that's become too important to you where you're now experiencing God withholding a blessing in that area? And if you will turn it over to him, if you will make him the Lord of that area in your life, often then he will send the rain. Um, We've often seen this in the area of finances. Uh, I've heard people say, we couldn't give. We didn't have the financial resources to tithe. It just didn't make sense for us. But then we finally decided to step out in obedience and faith and to give God the first of our finances. And when we did, God blessed us in that area in one way or another. I mean, I'm not saying that they'd get rich, but God protected them and God provided for them. I've heard that story many times. So in other words, you stop worshiping Baal and God sends the rain. Don't be surprised in your life. There are some things that have become too important to you and God sends a drought. Perhaps God is wanting to draw attention back to him because he wants to make certain that he is the Lord of that area in your life. So you turn to him, you look upon him, and when you do, then you begin to feel a drop of rain on your face. Now I want to be really clear here. This is not a guaranteed formula, okay? Um, It's not something where uh, you go to God and you say, okay, God, I'm going to make you first in my life, and so you need to come through for me if I do this. Uh, That's not exactly how it works either. Um, God may want us to wait or struggle in our lives for a number of reasons, but I'm saying that often he does send a drought to help us surrender all to him read the story of a little girl who walks into a department store and she sees this pearl necklace there. And it's not real. It's fake. Um, it's kind of gaudy, kind of tacky. Costs about $10, but she loves it. So she goes home. She saves up her money until she has 10 bucks, and she comes back to the store. She buys these fake pearls and then she just wears them everywhere. I mean, all the time. She wears these false pearls and As I said, they look kind of tacky, but she doesn't care. Finally, her father comes to her one night and he says, Honey, do you love me? And the little girl says, Dad, you know I love you. And the father says, Well, then I want you to give me those pearls. The little girl says, Dad, you can have my favorite toy, but you can't have my pearls. So he comes to her the next night and he says, Honey, do you love me? I want you to give me your pearls. She says, well, you can have my favorite doll, but you can't have my pearls. Well, she thinks about this. And then the next day she comes down the steps. She has some tears in her eyes and she's carrying her gaudy, tacky pearls in her hand. And she says, daddy, you can have my pearls. I want you to know how much I love you. And at that point, the father pulls out of his pocket a velvet case and he opens it up for his daughter so that she can have a real pearl necklace. See, he was waiting for her to let go of the imitation so that he could bless her with the real thing. He was waiting to see that he as a father meant the most to her and then he would give her the best gift of all. I wonder how often we are missing out on God's blessing in a certain area of our lives because we've made it too important. And if we would just give it back to him, 
then God would send the rain. So God makes his point by sending the drought. He sends Elijah back to Ahab, and basically Elijah sets up what you might call a cage match between God and all the gods of Baal and Asherah. Verse 21 says, Elijah went before the people and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? Does this sound familiar from Joshua 24? How long are you going to go back and forth? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, that's God, follow him. Then it says this in verse 21. But the people said, and what do you think the people said? Nothing. The people said nothing. Now you have to ask yourself, why? Why were they silent? This is convicting because I can see myself in this. They were silent because they didn't want to have to choose. They wanted both. So they thought it best to just say nothing at all. You and I, we don't like to be forced to choose. We say, God, you're welcome here. Please be here. We want you in our hearts. But just understand that you may have to share that space with someone or something else. You know, and we we can do that with different things. Maybe you say, God, I'm going to share you with my hobby of sports or whatever. Or worse yet, maybe we try to share him with something that's completely contrary to who he is. Many Many of the things that we share our heart with are not evil or wrong. But remember what we've said. When good things become God, then it's idolatry. And God won't have it. And so if you think in your life that you're sharing God with something else in your heart, um, God is not sitting there. He wants you to choose because he is a jealous God. So how do we fight the gods of pleasure? How do we fight the gods of pleasure? Well, first, we identify the gifts that compete with the giver. Now, our idols are different than they were in 1 Kings, but in 1 Kings, the stage is set. The people are excited. They're all watching to see who's going to win this great battle, this great war between the gods. In verse 25, Elijah says, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. He's giving them home court advantage. You take the ball first. Since there are so many of you, call the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. You have to like this. Um, Some biblical trash talking here. He says, shout louder. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and they must be awakened. Verse 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Oh, are you picturing this in your mind? They, they dance, they shout, and eventually they cut themselves until the blood flows, trying to get the attention of their God, hoping for some kind of response. And our instinct, our reaction is probably... Oh, how primitive is that? But if you think about it, we sacrifice for other gods in crazy ways too. In fact, we will do many crazy things just to find comfort or a good feeling. 
But eventually we realize that our pleasure doesn't last. It's empty. But we run off and try to find something else. I struggled today to try to decide what God of pleasure to highlight or talk about because there's so many that we can choose from. Food, sex, entertainment. But if you look and you study the New Testament, you discover this. Every single time the word idolatry is used in the New Testament, every single time, in the same sentence, you find the phrase sexual pleasure. Every time. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes on this issue. He says, You can get a large audience together for a strip tease act, that is, to watch a girl disrobe on stage. But now suppose you went to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing a covered dinner plate on the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so that everyone could see just before the lights went out that it contained a lamb chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that something had gone wrong in that country and their appetite for food? Something has gone wrong in our country and in our world. What God gave us as a beautiful gift for marriage, we've taken and we've turned it into a God. And it can be a terrible God. Instead of accepting his gift, we clutch our imitation pearls and we miss out on the real thing. And so in some ways, sex has become a religion for our culture. Now, maybe you would never enter into an adult bookstore or you would never purchase pornography. But you might enter into a website. And in so doing, it becomes a pagan temple where you go to worship. For many people, the God of sex has become a God substitute where they go for comfort This is where we go for joy when we're down. This is where we might go if we're lonely or rejected or angry or bored. And it becomes a God. So we may mock these people in the Bible. But don't think that we haven't sacrificed for our own gods of pleasure. We have. And like the prophets of Baal, we're hoping for some kind of response because it always demands a little bit more. And so for some of you, you've sacrificed for the pleasure of alcohol. You sacrificed your marriage to that God. Some of you have sacrificed for the pleasure of food. You sacrificed your health to that God. Many have sacrificed time and money for the entertainment of media and electronic devices. And you've sacrificed your relationships with your family for that God. So perhaps physically we don't cut ourselves for our gods, but we sacrifice and suffer all the same for doing it. We have to fight the gods of pleasure, and we do that by identifying the gifts that compete or share our heart with the giver. And then secondly, we stop depending on those gifts or sacrificing to them to give us life. Verse 29. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So they try, and the altar doesn't light on fire. And now it's Elijah's turn. He rebuilds an altar. He digs a trench around it, and then he puts the wood on it, and he puts a bull on it. And then he has the people come and bring gallons and gallons of water. He floods the altar. He floods it until the trench fills up with water. And I think this is Elijah's way of saying, 
My God can beat your God with his hands tied behind his back. Elijah steps forward and he doesn't dance around. He doesn't flail around the ground. Instead, he prays a simple and a humble prayer. Verses 36 and 37, he says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. So his motivation is God's glory and that people's hearts would turn back to him. And I'm wondering if this isolation time is not an opportunity for God to turn people's hearts back to him. Verse 38 and 39 say, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil. It even licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So God, the Lord God, wins the war. And it really wasn't much of a challenge, to be honest. But the people get to see the power that the Lord God has, and they destroy their false idols. In fact, they slaughter the false prophets. They turn to God himself, and they put him back in his place of glory in their nation. And so here's the challenge for us. How do we defeat the gods of pleasure? Because to be honest, we may have a God of pleasure that now sits on the throne of our heart and and we may have tried again and again to defeat it and dethrone it, but it just crawls back up there. So how do you find victory? Well, the most effective way and really the only way to remove a false God that has a grip on your heart is to replace it with a new God, a God of greater affection. Because when we try to gain control of a false god in our life by rejecting it or by focusing on it, it just gives it more power. And so when I as a pastor say, hey, don't do this. These are the consequences. This is what happened when you you worship a false god. It might lead you to repentance and conviction, but it rarely leads to a long-term change in your life. Why is that? Because there must be something more powerful and satisfying to take its place. It's not enough just to resist. It's not enough to just say no, as they said years ago. You must replace. And so it's not enough to just identify the gifts that compete with the giver or or enough to stop depending on that gift or sacrificing to it. But here it is. We must make God our greatest pleasure. Make God our greatest pleasure. Because when God is our greatest pleasure, all of the lesser gods of pleasure fade away. The Bible says in Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And so we find our pleasure in God. And there's so many ways to find pleasure in him. But I believe that to to know him is to love him. And the more we know him, the more we find our pleasure in him. But one of the best things we can do is to worship him. And as we respond to God for who he is and what he's done for us, we experience the pleasure of being his children. And he becomes our greatest pleasure. And so today, 
you need the power of the Lord. If you're not a believer, then you need to talk with me or someone that you trust about following this one true God so that you can become a follower of him. If you are a believer, then today is a day to make sure that Jesus is on the throne of your heart. To severely deal with other gods that are threatening your heart. Deal with the gods of pleasure. Food, sex, entertainment, whatever they are, claim Jesus as Lord over them. Because this is what you need more than anything else. You need to make God your greatest affection. And maybe like the people on Mount Carmel we talked about last week, there's something within you that says, eh, don't do anything. Just sit and be quiet. Just remain silent. But Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. And Elijah says, how long are you going to go back and forth? And Jesus says, just come to me. Come to me.